0: Okay, welcome to the fourth lecture on Immanuel Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. Um this lecture is on transcendental idealism and the refutation of idealism. Transcendental idealism, you you on any course on the Critique of Pure Reason, you will come across this. This is like the the big idea of the Critique of Pure Reason in a certain sense. The refutation of idealism uh i believe is is it's actually fairly ignored uh it's not brought up all that often um i think for a couple of reasons it can sort of confuse people uh more so than kant already does um and there's a few other reasons as to why i think it's not brought up and we'll get to them when we when when i get to that near the end of this lecture but we'll start with the transcendental idealism um once again i do have some recommended reading for this lecture i'd recommend reading uh, b294 through to b315 of the critique of pure reason once again the hackett edition uh, i'd also recommend reading uh, the prolegomena page 40 to 46 and the appendix and i'd also recommend reading kant's transcendental idealism by um, nf stang Uh, which for anyone who's got the notes is linked Um, and anyone who's sort of extremely on board with Kant with the idea of transcendental idealism feel it's like a philosophical direction that they they truly believe in they truly could work towards I recommend Alison's book uh, on Kant's I think it's it's just called Kant's Transcendental Idealism and it's the renowned text as a defence of uh, the position itself which which I will come to explain Um, but anyway let's dig in um, so, thus far, uh, especially in the last lecture on the transcendental aesthetic, Kant has claimed that space and time are part of the subjective intuition of the subject of ourselves, which, as noted, is in strict contrast to the presumed objectivity of space and time. Um, thinkers such as Newton and Leibniz, who, who understood that space and thus objects as that which are sort of independent of our experience and have, you know, they have these subjective characteristics. So Kant is beginning from these perceptions, from these representations, um, and the understanding that no one has this real access to the things in themselves, right? Once again, this idea of um, we have space and time as the foundational apparatus which allow us to um represent reality. You know, reality isn't immediate, it's mediated by our senses, so we never have access to that original or or initial thing in itself. Um, so you have on the one side you have phenomena and f- phenomenal representation, and on the other side you have noumena and thing and the thing in itself. Um, so after the first edition of the critique is published, Kant is sort of charged with the idea that his work is in fact another form of idealism. This is what's put to him: is that actually he's just brought forth Another form of idealism, which we we would have been talking about in in terms of um, t- to a certain extent, though we will get to this Descartes, Leibniz, um, Berkeley, and Hume, and all this discussion of skepticism, idealism, and whether or not Kant has just brought another form of idealism that is the the external world is 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 you know developed by a mind. Has he just brought another um, form of this forward? And Kant sort of says, sure, you know. That's fine, but he qualifies this by saying that what he's brought forth is transcendental idealism. He's a transcendental idealist. Now, what is that? So by transcend Kant says in A369. By transcendental idealism, I mean the doctrine that appearances are to be regarded. One and all representations only, not things in themselves, and that time and space are therefore only the sensible forms of our intuition, not the conditions of objects viewed as things in themselves. So, this is, you know, this passage, you can see the construction of that famous Kantian barrier of phenomena and new manner, building from this transcendental aesthetic, the idea of time and space being sense just sensible forms or the the two foundations which just build our sensible form of intuition but not actually space themselves and from that you know we have representations and we represent things via our senses but of course what is there before that what is that thing in itself and on the one side we have phenomena and that's the 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 stuff the things the objects the experience which which we um understand in our empirical reality and then we have the noumena you know that sort of elusive other side um, where the thing in itself, the real true thing, whatever it might be um, resides. And the often overlooked problem is um, because because many of these questions and the reason Kant is charged with well isn't this just another form of idealism is aren't we just entering once again back into another form of scepticism where we haven't actually developed our knowledge of experience any further than Descartes, Hume Berkeley, etc. Right? Um, and the overlooked problem is that once you buy into the transcendent idea—not transcendental, transcendent—once you buy into the transcendent idea that one could gain access to this this numenal realm, could go beyond, could understand what the real is—you've actually constructed um, an even worse form of skepticism, and even you know, sort of an even more labyrinthian problem. Um, because whereas with the phenomenal-numenal split, you know, we we from the the Kantian understanding that you have the real whatever that may be that you have the thing in itself that is there we can't say what it is we can't say how it is we can't say when it is because when it's processed and how it's processed via our senses and via our inner cognition via us it has to conform to these to to space and time to spatiotemporality, temporality that foundation that that builds everything now whereas within the phenomenal numeral split if you accept that options are left op- open without entering into the conjecture about the inaccessible or epistemologically unverifiable aspects of those options because with the phenomenal new mental split we're accepting that we do have an experience but that experience is we have to understand the conditions of that experience we have an experience we all know we have an experience i'm having an experience i'm having an experience right now of looking at a screen and smelling uh, some sort of relatively clean air, um, of tasting some peppermint tea, etc., etc., of seeing things and experiencing the world. And we all have this, this, these experiences. We definitely have them. But, of course, they have to be processed, and there are conditions for those experiences, thus creating that phenomenal mental divide and accepting that there is a new noumenal uh, realm or, or beyond, or whatever it may be. We can't verify, it, of course, that there is. And, of course... If you don't have this divide, you enter into sort of a double a, a worse form of skepticism. If there were no divide between these two between between what's conditioned and the thing that it's conditioned from um Dan Robinson puts forth the idea we would remain in the in the Berkeleyan idea, right, which is to be is to be perceived, and we get to this much later, but really that idea is that. And it, it's roughly the same as Hume, but there's there's two different distinctions there, and I'll explain them a li- little bit more later. But once we, if we don't accept this split of the phenomena phenomena and noumena, this divide between human experience and how you know how and how it's conditioned and what you know what there is originally that conditions it, the Berkeleyan is to be is to be perceived, which is just that the concepts in the entire world truly just come from God, and from the perceptions as they arrive in other people and it's all all an associative thing. So to be is to be perceived. You're only real in that sense that you, you are in this experience being perceived and there isn't actually some form of reality. And once again, with Hume, when he speaks of causality and stating that, well, anything could be the cause of anything. And neither of these have grasped onto some sort of, shall we say, er, uh, as in you are, you know, originary reality. Or principle or apparatus or objective apparatus of reality which is even allowing these things to happen they're remaining well within that skeptical idealism of sort of pertaining to a an unverified ability but just falling back into that and not attempting to actually construct from the conditions okay so Kant is saying well okay it may very well be that we have this transcendental idealism which is a uh, a form of idealism where we have the phenomenal and noumenal split, but we but we are beginning but at least Kant is beginning to to state things along the lines of we have a an experience I'm working out the conditions of this the this experience and how it comes about space time the transcendental aesthetic. Let's begin from there, and so transcendental idealism for Kant simultaneously provides proof for the claim that the objects of our our cognition are also empirically real. So empirical, in this sense, should not be confused with sensible and non-sensible objects, okay? as is the case with the distinction between immanent and transcendent. Okay? The empirical transcendental distinction, distinction is one in which objects are not divided into different kinds. Okay? The very same object can be understood in both empirical and transcendental respects. When an object is considered empirically, it is considered from the human viewpoint, and as such, Considered via our senses, and we have that empirical experience once again, which we spoke—I spoke, spoke about—in terms of synthetic a priori judgments. uh, uh You know, and in this even though we still have that language of empiricism, which I think one needs to separate mentally from this. Like, it's an empirical fact because the problem, of course, is that the empirical experience from the human viewpoint is actually a representation, and this is once again back to that point of Kant's that saying, well we rely on empirical science to to you know send rockets to the moon or um i don't know something in his day we understand that when we drop an apple certain things will happen etc cetera, etc cetera. we've developed a coherent scientific framework from this empirical standpoint so there can't there must be something in it so this is where uh, you know uh, the only way we can work out things of reality from because it's the experience we're given um so the empirical is the representation it's that human synthesized process, uh, experience. And this is contrasted with empirically ideal objects, mental objects, hallucinations, illusions, etc. So space and time are empirically real for the fact that they are needed for us to have a, a, any intuition of reality whatsoever. But this reality is also to be considered real from our viewpoint. It is the reality we synthesize via our mode of cognition. Um, So Transcendental idealism is immediately playing with what was built up in that last um, lecture about the transcendental aesthetic. Um, I'm just going to move my camera down here and flick to the next slide. Um, um, so we are moving in so deeper now to the trans- to, into transcendental idealism. So the distinction with respect to the transcendental is that the transcendental viewpoint is taken in relation to the conditions of experience. As I've said before, transcendental, just the simplest way to to think about that is the conditions of experience, okay? What are the conditions which allow the experience to be possible? Or put together in idealism, what are the conditions which allow for such an idealism to be possible? Now, the transcendental analysis of reality is undertaken then in, with respect to the conditions from which experience is made possible as opposed to the experience itself. Instead of just taking uh, a general idealism, the idea that perhaps the world is just created by our mind and just taking that and moving. So, you know, uh, you, you state something, you an idealism. The world is created by our mind or the world is a, is a mental um, apparatus. And we accept that as experience. And you move from there. Of course, you're moving from a wrong viewpoint. Kant is always stepping back as much as he can. Philosophy of critique and stating what are the conditions, even if that's an idealist, an idealism or a mental apparatus. We still have to verify and work with the conditions which allow that to be, to, to be possible. And from that, you can then build up um, a notion of what might be real or not real. So the transcendental framing allows us to understand objects and reality independent from our standpoint. Okay, it doesn't actually allow us to, to understand um, the things in themselves, obviously, but it does lay, allow us to take a step back and to, to say, okay, right, so space and time are these things which are needed, and later on the unit transcendental unity of our perception, and we need to make these things called judgments, which comes later on as well. Um, and there's different types, you know, we understand that... we, we, we in line with judgments there are those that come from a priori and a posteriori but these are all conditions these aren't immediately part of our experience these are conditions which come to it so this allows us to sort of step out and frame it so that we can under begin to understand these independently from our standpoint now one thing i would throw in here is that some of the east uh, eastern philosophical criticism i've read read from kant is of course that you know arguing that by stating that you, you know, you step out and you can review the conditions of your experience, you are always, the Eastern philosophy would say, you're always subsuming that back into some form of sort of um, ego apparatus. And so you're never truly getting away from those conditions. And I don't, you know, I I like these criticisms. Um, I don't think the Western mind these days merges too well with Eastern thought all that well. Um, I think we really struggle with it um, in terms of, getting the nuanced, nuanced aspects of it. But I don't think that's what Kant's trying to get towards. I think any criticism of Kant where people might say he overlooked something is probably a bit hasty. Um, Kant is not that not that kind of philosopher. So he would understand, of course, that any analysis we have, let's say, uh, any meta-analysis is still done from the position of, of a, a human analysing something. He would understand that. But equally he he. i think what the argument would be is you can theoretically understand what the conditions for experience are but that doesn't mean to say that you can get outside of them just because you understand something you know you may have all the uh, the amazing equations to get to the moon but you might not have the ability to do it but that's a different thing it's a metaphysical question of whether or not there's actually the ability within your your cognitive apparatus to ever escape that you can theorize Get under it, get behind it, and work out what the foundations um, and the the apparatus is that that conditions reality. But that isn't to say that you get behind it. Um, So for something to be considered real in the transcendental sense, it would constitutionally have to exist Apart from the way in which we represent it, making it a thing itself and thus real. Okay, so to be considered real in that transcendental sense, and this is why we bring in this idea of, you know, mental objects of hallucinations, illusions, uh, uh, and things along the Cartesian, uh, Cartesian doubt, which I'll get to later. You know, you you could say, you know, the prob one of the problems of idealism, which Descartes brings up, is what of uh, you know, an oasis in the desert? What of a hallucination? What of um, mental? objects and you know the, the the to be considered real in this transcendental sense uh, constitutionally have to exist apart from the way in which we represent it so even if uh, we you know, you know we, we obviously understand that what we're getting isn't the the real thing itself it's a representation but to be real in the transcendental sense there would have to be that uh, thing in itself there prior uh, if the inverse of course was found to be true in that the thing in itself is entirely dependent on the syntheses of man and on our sensibility, then actually we'd be dealing with an ideal thing in itself, right? So, to clarify that, to be transcendentally real, the thing in itself is there first, and we then represent it. To be transcendentally ideal, that 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 arrow which I've spoken about before is reversed in that, the, the the supposed reality experience out there only comes about because of our cognitive um workings. So Kant states in A forty two to three and B fifty uh, nine to sixty um what objects may be in themselves, and apart from all this receptivity of our sensibility, remains completely unknown to this, okay, the thing in itself. We know nothing but our mode of perceiving them, a mode which is peculiar to us. Even if we could bring our intuition to the highest de- degree of clearness, we should not thereby come any nearer to the constitution of objects in themselves and This is why there is a lot of criticism of these these sort of um notions or any sort of experimental philosophy which believes it 's gone beyond the bounds of of um that, that you know we 've broken through the new num- man uh, the phenomenal realm i 'm touching the real or the problem of the philosophy of psychedelics where people believe they've truly transcended into another realm of course even in these moments sort of of almost um aesthetic martyrdom where you've accessed a different realm you are still attending to these via your synthesis and so there's never really any clarifiable proof um you know that you, you you can never prove that you've done that because everything you're assessing is still done from um your subjective apparatus um it's from your sensibility from this then we can understand that even though the conditions of our reality are understood as space and time a priori we can't assert that these conditions apply universally to the constitution of things in themselves and thus cannot know them right once again this idea that actually space and time are just two foundational aspects to our existence. We can't apply these to other things. We can't apply these to the thing itself. And actually, we, I get into this a bit later and how this this becomes quite peculiar and that the, the, you can develop, Kant does develop some proofs from this. Basically, knowledge for Kant cannot be understood independently of the, independently of the way in which it is conditioned for us, by us, which allows for the notion of an empirical reality, right? The split. There is the knowledge which is conditioned via our synthesis, via our sensibility and, and conceptualization, those two things, uh, the sensibility and the conceptualization, which come together, which I spoke about last time. There is the empirical reality, which is that conditional reality of human synthesis. Right? That's reality one, the phenomenal world. And though it exists subjectively in relation to the transcendental, it has enough rigorized conditions to meet an objectivity in relation to to the way in which man synthesizes, e.g. it has a priori foundations. There is enough objective data, therefore, can with regards to space and time, with regards to sensibility, with regards to this sort of development of a transcendental aesthetic structure, to state that there is this empirically real, but only on this one side, we still can't get beyond um, reality. Okay, this exper- uh, experiential reality that we experience—that's the empirical reality—but it's still within the transcendental framework. Okay, so Kant makes it clear that the subjective objects, of our spatio-temporal intuition, could not exist via any other means. Okay, if the subject ourselves, and thus sensibility and that you know that which represents reality were removed space and time would vanish because space and time is 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 only the foundation for us it's 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 what we need as human beings to develop reality to synthesize reality to create reality at all if we were to go uh, sorry, if 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 the subject yeah, if the subject was removed as far as we know and can ever know space and time too are removed so there's an intimate relation between the subjective objects of human intuition and the transcendental things in themselves. The reason for the transcendentally ideal objects creates the legitimization of the empirical reality as a coherent subjectivity. OK, um, we can move to the limit of our subjective reality, whatever that means. We can write about it and we can talk about the conditions given that are allowed to us by our subjective reality, but we can't venture beyond the limit. It's the boundary. And once again, i would repeat that idea. You can't ever know you've gone beyond that boundary if you've attended to some new form of sensibility or to some something beyond any of this, because you will always be doing so via the same means of cognition, via the same Sensible processes. So transcendental idealism then. The thesis that the reality of our cognition. Is if mere appearance representation. Empirically real. But transcendentally ideal. Things cannot be known as they are in themselves. Transcendental idealism. The development of a split. There is an empirically real. Experiential reality. Which humans collectively intuit. But those intuitions themselves, even though we can develop some coherent framework from it, back to geometry, instance, synthetic a priori uh, judgments, they are still representations and we still are not attending to the things in themselves. Okay. But that begs. Um, you know another split okay so you can have transcendental idealism things cannot be known as they are in themselves but you can also have technically transcendental realism right that would be the objects have the constitution which we would represent them as having in principle things can be known in themselves that would be that the thing in itself is exactly as it appears to us okay um now, I put that in there because Kant does actually clarify something here that it is a mistake to think about transcendental, real- transcendental realism. Okay? He states, we have sufficiently proved in the transcendental aesthetic that everything intuited in space or in time, hence all objects of an experience possible for us, are nothing but appearances, mere representations, which, as they are represented as extended beings or series of alterations, have outside our thoughts no existence grounded in itself. This doctrine I call transcendental idealism. The realist in the transcendental signification makes these modifications of our sensibility into things subsisting in themselves, and hence makes mere representations into things in themselves. So really Kant is stating that the transcendental realist is simply making that mistake of mistaking our representations for things in themselves. So there likely is. I don't actually know this, but there likely is philosophers who've gone down the transcendental realist route. And I mean, you could look look at common Scottish common sense philosophy, which is actually, um, I believe, a lot of it was before Kant. But there's probably some neo common sense philosophy that comes after that actually follows this same route, but but plays still plays around with idealism. Um, but really, this is just a mistake for Kant. And and I would go as far to say, and I believe Kant does state this at some point that. Even if that was the case to be true. That, once again, my lovely pen. If this pen, I represent the pen, and actually somehow we could miraculously find out that the thing in itself, this pen, is exactly how it is. They are just one and the same. The point is, because of the way we 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 synthesize everything, we will never be able to know that. We just cannot ever know that. It's unverifiable. Okay. Um of importance at, uh, at this point is the idea, which is found in A twenty three B thirty seven, indicates that spatiotemporality belongs only uh, to human mode of intuition and it can't be applied to anything but the subjective reality uh, we inhabit. So when you think of space and time, you know I think just to clarify that when you think of the things itself, it don't begin thinking oh you know. Maybe their space is really weird. Maybe this pen is like elongated and green or in time, this is like flicking around and the thing in itself. No, 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 no space and time are just, just for us. Um, you know, space and time only form a reality under the limitation of the human mode of representation. And Kant argues uh, that because this is the case, um, it's also impossible for space and time to be the way things are in themselves. Okay. Space, uh, space and time to be the way things in themselves are. Okay. Because, because we have already had to have processed them. Right, so Kat concludes... Because it is impossible for things themselves to be spatio-temporal, We can know that they are not. Okay. It's a very tight logic and seems like a big jump. Um, but if th- if things in themselves... Were of space and time... We would be able to know them... Because the foundations for our existence are of space and time. Though therefore things in themselves are not spatio-temporal. Which begs the question, what the hell are they? Unfortunately, I don't have the answers. And we can't have the answers. Um, just before I move into the refutation of idealism, I want to have a little, just a little, play around with this idea of space and time and transcendental idealism and the geometric argument for transcendental idealism, right? So we know, in our subjective reality, this empirical Reality, which is still beholden to representations, we know two straight lines can't enclose a space. Okay, two straight lines—they go. Okay, can't enclose it. Can't can't be done. Geometry then, there is some proofs in that with regards to space, and thus time. Geometry then it tells us for can, both what the properties of spatiality are, but also what they must be. Right, if these geometric objects were things in themselves, they would have these properties by virtue of their independent reality. But this understanding of how geometry must be or function is entirely universal in concordance with the thing in itself, okay the fact that we understand in our um, empirical experiential representational, phenomenal. Spatiality, uh, spatiality spatiotemporality—that two lines cannot contain a, a, a space—allows us to understand something that that's going on in the thing in its in the thing in itself. In that Noumenal world, the mathematical propositions allow us to know this, not know the thing in itself by itself, but to understand that well. This is a definite thing here. Mathematic this this mathematic proposition or geometric proposition is a definite thing. You know, there's no way we can get around that. There's no amount of anything we can do in this which will allow us to actually prove it. Therefore, there must be some objective reasoning as to why this is happening in the on the other side of things. Okay, so they very, you know, the very existence of a thing in itself, proven abstractly in this way by our synthetic a priori process proves that they must also act in the same way in relation to appearance and as such the proof of transcendental idealism then lies in our ability to only know they are that that via our representation of them in space proving the intimate connection between the two aforementioned modes of transcendental reality the idealism and the realism okay something in this synthetic a priori proposition you could think of two lines in space that just can't ever do it or you could think that one plus one equals two this is a synthetic a priori proposition and thus has it has this connection which isn't reliant on the experiential spatiotemporality and thus borders these two zones because the 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 you know the the the, the function or the mathematical um not even a proposition. The most ma- mathematical truth of 1 plus 1 equals 2, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Such a foundation of mathematics has allowed us to build bridges and thus affect the empirical world in a degree which creates some form of coherent framework for us to work with it. And therefore, from that, because those initial geometric or mathematical proofs don't have a connection to experiential reality, they are synthetic and a priori, they are necessary and yet gain from experience when there is no actual connection to empirical experience, they border, they, they exist in this strange zone. Okay. However, um, even if no, just stepping back a bit. In short, the argument regarding transcendental idealism in relation to the aesthetic is it must be explained how objects are possible for us and the conditions of their possibility. The conception of transcendental realism falls flat in, in its relation to things in themselves. It, it makes the mistake of mistaking representations for things itself, And thus we must accept that we have a priori representations which constitute objects. Objects thus become transcendentally ideal. We can have this understanding via these synthetic a priori propositions, but our experiential reality of them is still ideal, but it's an idealism based on certain conditions which we can to a certain degree work with, but that doesn't mean that we can get to the thing in itself. We're in a bind. (laughs) However, even if we understand things in themselves as independent of our representations of them, to which our cognition must conform, we're still deriving knowledge from them by way of representing their inherent constitutions and natures okay it's a knowledge however vague and illusory master or unhelpful of how that thing must exist for it is the real in itself so even though we don't know the thing in itself the representations we gain from it is an inclination as to how that thing must exist and this is why for Kant geometric and mathematic propositions are so fundamentally key to our understanding of the world because they've allowed us to 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 interact with the empirical reality in a way that it may very well be affecting that uh, real thing you know the actual thing in itself noumenal reality um okay so moving into the refutation of idealism okay As I stated, the refutation of idealism is something which is consistently left out of various courses and talks on the critique of pure reason, right? This is either out of willful ignorance, because it seems to play a minor role in the text itself, or people just don't like talking about it, or I've overblown it, you know? I'm not a Kant scholar, I haven't got a PhD, even though that wouldn't matter. Um, (laughs) Anyway, let's move into the refutation. In the refutation... And this is probably the reason it's left out of the course is Kant seeks to prove, okay, so remember everything I've just said in that previous section, and everything I've said in the transcendental aesthetic, and everything to do with synthetic a priori propositions and judgments, okay. In the refutation, Kant seeks to prove we do, in fact, have experience of objects which are distinct for us from us in space, thereby refuting any continued scepticism about the external world and our relationship to it. Okay, so Kant does seek to prove that we do have experience of objects which are distinct from us in space. Firstly, Kant begins by describing various forms of idealism, okay, beginning with a conception of material idealism. Uh, material, idealism okay. material idealism, as Kant sees it, is the form of idealism we would understand as Cartesian, uh, in which one assertion is indubitable. Okay, I am, or cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, wherein the sensible and conceptual form of representations come from the subject, the matter which co- or the material which corresponds to sensation does not. It affirms that the matter of representations is supplied by the subject, so it is an idealism concerning objects. Kant's objective in the refutation is to refute this material idealism and defend an empirical realism. The way in which Kant attempts to prove that time and space in their entirety are subjective is by stating that any objects with spatial and temporal properties, or space and time in general, are transcendentally ideal. So within this refutation of idealism, he's really bringing in transcendental idealism. Okay, um, Whereby transcendental means that if there is to be understanding, there must be a categorical framework which allows for such comprehension comprehension of experience. Once again, transcendental, what are the categorical and you know, almost apparatus, conditional apparatus, which allows for us to have this experience? The foundation of transcendental idealism is this distinction between appearance, that which is, which is given to the subject prior to intuition. We get the appearance, then we intuit it, and it's this representation. The distinction between appearance and the thing itself, Okay, this distinction between the, roughly the phenomenal and the noumenal. But for Kant, there must be a categorical framework which allows us, for instance, to make the calculations which allow a bridge to stay up, which I just spoke about. That's why I brought in that short section on geometry, okay? And thus what will happen in the the external world. There must be some formal objective apparatus which allows us to be able to make consistent, coherent, empirical observations and theorizations which allow, you know, a bridge to stand up, a wall to stand up, etc. Okay. Then what are the preconditions, Kant asks, which allow this? Of course, this is already taking for granted the fact that we have already altered the external world. So how does Kant prove the external world is there in the first instance? To do this, Kant first states that any awareness, inner, inner awareness, as we find in Descartes and Berkeley, actually requires an awareness of an external reality. Let me repeat that. Kant puts forth the idea that any inner aware, awareness requires an awareness of external reality and any inner awareness requires external awareness it is only by way of our experience of the outer world that we have this inner world and this is why kant states he is turning idealism against itself because idealism is obviously generally thought of as the world is created as a mental apparatus but here we go you know kant's playing around he's going mad he's he he he's, he's turning idealism against itself by saying that the very apparatus which we supposedly would make, which is conditioned, is actually the thing which conditions what we get. Right. Once again it's that arrow brought in right in the very first lecture is being reversed very, very cleverly. How does he do this? Kant argues that all objects of our subjective intuition are inner objects and thus temporal. Okay? Or outer objects and thus spatial and temporal. Um when we have an outer object Sensibility, uh, external object, outer object. Um, there it is. In, uh, it's in the sensible world. And it is the inner process. The the, the, the object as it is as an, as an inner object or an, as an inner process is the thing which puts this, this, this in order into a coherent sequence. Uh, in Very roughly inner temporality, outer um, spatiality. Okay. All spatio-temporal objects are appearances. And since they are all that are given to us as the foundations of reality of time and space. All objects for us as appearances, representations, are transcendentally ideal. We are conscious of ourselves in time, but such consciousness within time presupposes something permanent in perception. One is fixed in time. Variations in time, things moving, objects passing against one another, uh, objects passing against other stationary objects, this you know presupposes a permanent background for them to move against almost in contrast okay and so you see without the movements movement of objects in space against some fixed background there cannot be perceivable time if there was nothing for this to move against in contrast we would not be able to think about what the hell duration or time is there would there cannot be such a thing as a sequence if there is nothing for a sequence to be in contrast to Okay. So without the movement of objects in space, there can't be perceivable time and thus no ability for apprehension. There is no way for me to perceive the passage of time without me being able to apprehend what the hell that going from here to here means. Okay. As you can see then, this is clearly counter to the idea that the mind has access only to its own internal states. It has to have access to the external state of this object to be able to even verify whether or not this internal state of time and succession makes any sense. Whereas in Kant we find this reversed, whereby those internal states, as I said, are only made possible by the apprehension of these external states, the reversal of that arrow of idealism. These aren't subjective conditions to a certain individual, but the necessary, the spatio-temporally necessary and universal conditions for there to be a state of mind for each individual at all. Okay. So, the refutation of idealism from that proposition that these external states are needed for there to be uh, a coherence of internal states of internal time, Kant begins by... Just minimise my camera a little bit here. There, by taking on some previous forms of scepticism, because this is what we're talking about when we're talking about whether or not we can know these internal or external states. We're talking about being sceptical of them. So Kant divides the 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 aforementioned material idealism into two sorts, okay, Um, or two forms of scepticism, really. Firstly, for Kant, there is the dog, what he calls the dogmatic idealism of berkeley which declares space itself to just be impossible and hence the things in space to be imaginings that is material objects for berkeley or Berkeleyan skepticism have no independent being but exist only as concepts of god's mind and as perceptions of those concepts in other minds in other people's minds to be is to be perceived for berkeley um and for Kant, this form of idealism is said to be unavoidable only if one regards space as a property that belongs to things in themselves, thus making it a non-entity. But actually space does belong to appearances because I understand via appearances and representations that well, appearance and then representations that this object is in space and this external state of spatio succession is what allows me to have these temporal. Uh, this temporal coherence. Secondly there is the problematic idealism of Descartes or Cartesian scepticism uh, which asserts that the external world is doubtful and indemonstrable, inferring that any knowledge of the external world is dubious as it is inferred from inner states to outer objects or we are unable to prove by direct experience an existence apart from our own and thus are always within our own experience. Uh, so very classically Cartesian doubt um, I'll take my pen, but Descartes took a um, uh, a, a wax uh, a wax candle and just kept doubting it. You know, how can I know it's there? How can I know it's this color? How can I know it exists? It could be a dream, etc., etc. Um, this is Cartesian Cartesian doubt Cartesian method. Keep doubting. Um, Kant believes this is actually reasonable uh, in that it permits no decisive judgment before proof has been found. Right. So, to a certain degree, there Descartes is saying, well how can I know this? But he isn't actually directly taking on conditions. He's still retaining it within this subjective framework that keeps it all very human. Um, You know, Kant's okay with it because it permits no decisive judgment before proof has been found, a proof that is reliant, not just on our imagination. So Descartes is trying to prove through this doubt, well, how can we ever make sure, ever make sure that we are actually, you know, almost external to our own subjective intuitions of something, right? It's like, um, how can a representation sort of vindicate its own representation? You have to make sure that you are actually coming at it from an objective angle and not just relying... You're not just proving subjective uh, intuitions from those subjective intuitions, right? Like a dog chasing its tail. Um, So these two forms of scepticism... are sort of subsumed together as material slash empirical idealists. Both assume that immediate objects are subjective rather than empirically real, hence the idealism. And both then infer that external objects come from knowledge of inner states. Okay. So the immediate objects for for Berkeleyan and Cartesian scepticism are idealism okay these are states to be is to be perceived or this could be a dream or an illusion that there isn't ever found even though it in Kant still remains because it's transcendental Gotta emphasize this within the phenomena phenomena and the representational framework there isn't this empirically real thing which isn't reliant on in in it there is this empirically real thing which is not reliant on just inner states. Okay. Kant argues that Descartes fails to leave idealism as everything that is inferred within the Cartesian manner is done so in this solipsistic view, right? He doesn't he doesn't leave idealism because it's once again it's like the subjective idealism proving its own theories via that same subjective idealism without ever actually having some empirical reality to to sort of anchor it. Okay. Thus to dispute to disprove, refute these forms of idealism, Kant needs to prove that and in his words B two five seven, even our inner experience, which for Descartes is indubitable, is possible only on the assumption of outer experiences. Um I have misspelled the quote on there I've put an extra E in there. Um, so Kant's argument here isn't that we only have the consciousness of ourselves thinking, as is the case with Cartesian metaphysics, Descartes, but we also have a corresponding empirical manifold which allows us to make true judgments about objective changes in one's experience. What is that? That is, once again, the our, our very judgment and representation of this external experience. The arrow is reversed and that is how we understand inner experience. Thus, Kant directs his reputation solely against the problematic idealism, okay? as Berkeley's idealism has already been undermined in the aesthetic, according to Kant. Kant seeks to prove then that we have actual experience of outer things and not just imagination of them. That experience of outer things, which is still just representation, is that very refute- refutation of idealism, not non-transcendental just normal idealism or cartesian idealism that we do have experience of these and it's this representational experience or intuited experience of this external world which allows us to actually have this inner experience and Kant begins that by assuming that one is conscious of their own experience determined in time b2 two, uh, two seven five again so one takes themselves to make true objective judgments about changes in experience, locates their mental history in an objective time order. Okay, I'm understand I'm able to locate my mental history, my memories in an objective time order order by assessing and analyzing and apprehending these external states. Okay, such an awareness presupposes something determinant and permanent in perception. And since all that is intuited is merely a succession of my representations, this permanent thing cannot be inside me. It is not an intuition of me. If there was that which remained permanent throughout one's experience, a self, it would be a permanent representation and not a representation of the permanent. Let me repeat that because I think it's fantastic. Any self of permanence of a person would be a permanent representation and not a representation of the permanent. So Kant is kind of still making it clear here that we, we just don't have this connection to the thing itself, okay? And thus, it is the intuition that remains and not the thing which remains throughout intuitive change, okay? Permanent representation is not more necessary than it is sufficient for the representation of the permanent. Permanent representation is not more necessary than it is sufficient for the representation of the permanent. The permanent, then, is for Kant, only possible through a thing outside me, and not through mere representation of said thing. And if this permanence is outside me, it must be spatial as space is outside me. Okay, Time, then, for the subject, is only intuited via alterations in space and cannot be intuited in itself. Empirical consciousness consciousness then, building all this up for Kant, the immediate consciousness of the existence of things outside me, an immediate time order arrives from the subject's intuition of that which is outside them, these external events. The refutation of idealism is made by reversing material idealism's own gain and using scepticism of objects against itself to determine an objective time order via the permanent intuition of outer objects as proof of those objects whether or not they are in themselves materially objectively equivalent to their representation so even if these objects are just the intuited representations of a um, phenomenal spatial apparatus or um, construction outside of me and there is this other thing in itself and even if they're not actually materially objectively equivalent to the thing in itself of them this exp- experiential, empirical existence of the phenomenal world, its in its external spatial existence, is still the thing which refutes that idealism by turning that arrow against itself and stating that it isn't the mind which creates the objects in the external space. It's, it's, it's the objects in external space which allow us, as the internal object, to intuit a objective time order. Whew. That is actually, you will be thankful, huh. the end of uh, lecture four um i've actually really enjoyed this one refutational idealism is a really fantastic bit uh they are getting more complex and i've spent a lot of time trying to make these accessible as accessible as possible without missing out the complexities of the language and there has actually been certain points where i've thought i've probably been a bit lazy especially with intuitions appearances representations that you can get a bit lazy there um but the things do sort of get a little bit more complex from now on the aesthetics, easy Synthetic Oprah is quite easy, and actually the problem is easy to understand what he's doing, Uh, but when you get into the nitty-gritty, transcendental idealism, refutational idealism, uh, it can get complex. Um, The notes, once again, patrons only. Um, uh, So the patron links will be in the description below. Um, And if you've enjoyed this, found it helpful, um, then, you know, like and all that lovely stuff, and subscribe, or think about supporting me on Patreon. Um, I will, yeah, soon have sort of recorded... Um, most of these lectures so if there's any texts in the continental tradition specifically you might like me to tackle um, please let me please let me know and i'll sort of jump to them uh, but if not i'm just going to sort of go through um, the entire history of continental philosophy and just ex- and, and talk to you guys about it but anyway um yep yeah, thanks for thanks for listening and i'll see you see you next lecture